0: We could either crash the biosphere and thus civilization, or we could actually create a really high-functioning and prosperous permaculture, a sustainable and just civilization on planet in balance of the biosphere. Both the utter disaster and the quite great semi-utopian historical moment are available to us.
1: That is famed science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson talking about the choice that global climate change is confronting us with. It's the central topic of his latest novel, The Ministry for the Future, and it's the focus of this episode of the Fiction Science Podcast. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, the mastermind behind Cosmic Log, and one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co host, award winning science fiction writer Dominica Fetiplace, as we talk with Kim Stanley Robinson about the ministry for the future and the technological innovations that could provide a happy ending. the climate change drama. Kim Stanley Robinson is best known for his Mars trilogy, and for other novels that delve into, say, lunar exploration such as Red Moon, or solar system settlement such as the book 2312, or interstellar flight such as Aurora. But he's also adept at spinning science fiction tales about our home planet. The Ministry for the Future, and an earlier novel titled New York 2140, are prime examples of a genre called climate fiction, or cli-fi for short. The Ministry, in the title of Robinson's new book, is an international agency that's created to serve as an advocate for future generations as nations address climate-caused disruptions, including a horrific heat wave that opens the book. The book's central characters are Mary Murphy, who heads up the ministry, and Frank May, a survivor of the heat wave. But, in a sense, their story is subsidiary to the saga of how the world responds to the climate imperative, by trying to shore up Antarctica's glaciers, by adding to the economic incentives for carbon-free technology, and by introducing other innovations that are in the realm of science fiction today but could be science fact tomorrow. It all made for a fascinating conversation when Dominica and I clicked into a Zoom session with Robinson, who was dialing in from an outdoors location at his California home. Listen carefully, and you can hear the sounds of other goings-on in his neighborhood. Listen more carefully, and you'll get a good sense of how Kim Stanley Robinson thinks we can get out of the climate mess that's facing us.
2: Thank you for being on our show. So you wrote this book, a science fiction novel, The Ministry of the Future, and it's very ambitious and the scope is very vast. In this novel, you cover geoengineering, climate science, conservation ecology, but you also get into cryptocurrencies, alternatives to surveillance capitalism, and you even get into the refugee crisis. So I'm curious, how did you go about researching all these different topics for this book?
0: Well, it was similar to the way I do all the rest of my novels. It's a matter of my general reading. And then once I get the idea for a novel, then I do some targeted research. I have scientist friends in most of the fields that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I basically have always operated by uh, trying a draft of the novel a rough draft definitely rough and then when i try to write the scenes that come to me i see better what i would need to know to make that scene work and then i research on a need to know basis in whatever field that the scene involves and then what i learn sometimes vastly changes that scene because i learned that I was wrong about certain things, or I get stimulated by what I learn in the, the secondary uh, burst of research to inspire new scenes that require more. Uh, so it's very much of a circular process. I don't research and then write books. That would be uh, uh, very problematic. In fact, I call that the Coleridge problem because Coleridge was going to write an epic poem like his friend Wordsworth did in the prelude. But he told everybody, including Wordsworth, that he needed to know everything about uh, chemistry, geology, sociology, and all of the kind of things that might go into an epic poem. And so Coleridge never wrote an epic poem. And and this is the problem of, of uh, re- uh, pre- setting up too high of a bar of research and knowledge before you begin. So I've always just dived in. And then um, since these books take about two years, in my most recent uh, work with Orbit books, it's actually been a year and a half. It's a completely circular process of writing and researching all at the same time, right to the end. And sometimes very late in the game, I'll learn things in my research, uh, which has to do sometimes with just conversation rather than targeted reading, you might call it. I'll learn things that are uh, are cause me to have to do some drastic uh, revision at the last point and then back revision through the course of the book so i guess i would say that for me writing and and research and revision are all part of the same process
2: with a pandemic happening like this year the same year the book is released is there anything that you wanted to add that you didn't get to
0: well the pandemic itself <laughs> i finished the book in january of this year, and and then did some very last revisions, sort of like at the copy editing stage, where really it was past the point of doing things massive in February and maybe a little in March. And so I actually put in a couple of brief mentions of the, you know, the dip of twenty twenty and somewhat mysterious references to twenty twenty that readers now, of course, know what you're yeah. talking about. Um, but what would that have done? Um, I think we've learned things in the pandemic that I could have put to use in Ministry for the Future. And in a way, I'm glad I didn't have to. It was already gonna be a big, messy uh, beast of a book. And I'm hoping that it still works even in the age of the pandemic, because it's sort of about the same issues that are still confronting us even after we come to terms with the pandemic. It might be that people are even better equipped to understand and take on ministry for the future than they would have been without the pandemic. I'm not sure about that because that's a kind of alternative history. You can never be sure about alternatives. Mm-hmm. But I will say this, it was very strange uh, to have finished a book about the world changing and then have the world change in a way that kind of hit me from the side like it did everybody else.
2: Yeah, well, it was kind of incredible for me as a reader to read a science fiction novel that, that starts in the year 2025. I was like, hey, that's just, that's just five years away.
0: Yeah, I wanted it to be something that, well, first of all, I think the, the wet bulb uh, temperatures and a heat wave are right, we're way too close to those really happening. But I also wanted a science fiction novel that started now so that you didn't have that feeling of dissociation that you yeah. often get. And, and I, I must say, as a science fiction writer, that dissociation, like, oh my gosh, I'm reading about something far in the future, that's not a bad thing, but that's not what I wanted for this book.
2: Got it. You do mention like the recession of 2020. Uh, economics actually is like a big part of this book. And there's some really intriguing possibilities raised for the alternatives to the things we're doing, including um, the notion that people might be paid Uh, for sequestering carbon. Could you explain a little bit more about how this carbon coin might work?
0: Sure, it's not my idea. In other words, I learned it from the literature of uh, current economists working at the edges and trying to imagine a way to change capitalism such that we get paid to do good things for the earth rather than paid to exploit and do bad things to the earth. And I'm very interested in that and have been for many years. Um, and what, the, what this carbon coin is, is, is essentially building on the idea that we need to pay the true cost of burning carbon. And that's usually seen as a penalty, as a tax, paying the true cost, um, putting a price on carbon that is more realistic than the market price. And, as, and if you think of taxes as sticks, providing a kind of carrot so that virtuous action, and which would be not burning carbon, but also sequestering carbon, you get paid for that because you were doing a good thing. Well, that's a nice idea in theory, but then who, who pays you? It could only be the central banks creating money. And because we've had two big episodes of quantitative easing, which in effect has created trillions of new dollars equivalent of money in the world without destabilizing the value of money itself. I mean, in other words, there hasn't been much inflation or deflation in the result of the 2008 quantitative easing and the pandemic quantitative easing. People talk about carbon quantitative easing so that you don't just make up money and new money and give it to the banks and let them do loaning in their usual, let's make maximum profit way, which is very often destructive to people in the biosphere. Instead, you make up that money and deliberately direct the first use of it to decarbonization. And so that would be the carbon coin. You put away a ton of carbon, you get paid a carbon coin. So it was as simple as that. And it wasn't like, I mean, you mentioned in your introduction cryptocurrency, it's not the same as a cryptocurrency, which is an attempt to make a private coded money that people rely on trusting each other to uh, keep the value of, which is speculative. And there's so many problems with Bitcoin, I can't even go into that. This would be real money. In, In other words, central banks, what they call senior edge or fiat money. There's different names for it. What they mean by that is money that's backed by government's promises and by armies like the dollar. So the carbon coin would be tradable for dollars. And this of course, wouldn't be a, a, put it under danger of speculation, where people would try to drive down its value and then in various ways manipulate it like finance does with the rest of currencies. That would be true and, and inevitable, but what, it, with the central banks backing it with their heft of being the real makers of money in the first place, this would be official money, not a cryptocurrency. Although it could also be blockchained because blockchains are separate from cryptocurrencies. Blockchain would be a way of uh, digitally recording money so that it couldn't be slipped off to tax havens the way uh, regular money is now. So they're somewhat separate ideas, the carbon coin and and making the carbon coins blockchain. But I did that in the book just to um, make it clear that new things are coming in finance if we're going to survive climate change, we need a new, um, a new political economy that therefore means a new uh, um, definition of what money is in the first place. Not radically new, but just that when it gets created by governments, it goes to good causes first and then flows into the rest of the economy.
1: Right. Uh, I learned about modern monetary theory. Thanks to your book. So it's uh, fascinating, all these concepts that uh, you introduce. Another one that I wanted to ask about is the Your Lock alternative to, I guess it's an alternative to Facebook, but it also plays off some of the ideas that we've been hearing about from, uh, frankly, other authors and and researchers about uh, data trusts and the idea that people are in charge of their own data. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about how you came across that idea and how you developed it?
0: Well, from this probably similar sources to you, um, in essence, this, because the data that Uh, because everybody has a digital life. I mean, you don't have to be on Facebook, but you very often are paying your bills and looking up things on Google. And to one extent or another, we're very much involved with our digital lives and creating data that is then being uh, aggregated and used to make profit by corporations. Sometimes just advertising, sometimes research into what people want and then mining that data in order to make money and sometimes this gets intrusive into privacy, like people's health histories. There is a lot of talk about privatization uh, or of, being, uh, of owning your own data because it's you. It's you on the Internet, you as a digital human. It's your digital body. It's your mind. It's your career, your life, that that should belong to you and not be uh, simply subject to predation by these uh, monopolies because, unfortunately, Unfortunately, the um, antitrust laws have not been applied in any kind of adequate way. So, I mean, Cory Doctorow is really good on this front and has been teaching me a lot about that, my fellow science fiction writer. And I very much appreciate what I can learn from him because he's so much a leader and knows more about that realm. But to end on that, I wanna uh, go back to the start of your, what you said about modern monetary theory. That is something that Corey is also interested in, but so I was independently of him. This is an interesting new uh, wing of economics that essentially tries to bring back Keynesianism in a new and refurbished form so that it's an attack on neoliberal capitalism on free market capitalism. It reinstates the crucial importance of government in our economic life in a positive valorized way and what modern monetary theory insists on is that there needs to be a job guarantee and this is like the works project administration of the new deal of the 30s which was a keynesian move and what Keynes said is that in hard times you need to uh, stimulate the economy by directing money and giving people jobs modern monetary theory is saying we're always in hard times now and that if there was a job guarantee that everybody when they wanted one would go to the government their own national government as employer of last resort and be guaranteed a job there with a living wage for that job, A, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So the idea that there aren't jobs is a false idea. And B, it would force all businesses to offer that same living wage or, the, or else they wouldn't be able to attract workers who could always go to the government and get a better job. So the floor would be raised by this job guarantee in terms of a living wage for everybody. It's transformative and it's the reason why modern monetary theory puts it in capital letters. Job guarantee, they often just put JG in capital letters. And it's, it's along with quantitative easing that you make up money and target it in, for good purposes. These are the two pillars that hold up modern monetary theory now, conventional mainstream capitalist economists have sometimes scoffed at it or said, oh, it can't possibly work, but they offer no evidence. And actually, we're in free fall in terms of economic theory right now. Ever since 2008, our sense of uh, of what the economy is and how it runs, of what finance is, has been thrown all into uh, disarray. And so right now, it's a kind of open field of dispute as to which economic system might serve us best and that gets us back to political economy and out of microeconomics so this is a really important and i guess i would say the science that i focused on most of all is the social science of political economy because i think that's the crux of whether we're going to get through this century without a mass extinction event we got to pay ourselves to do the right things
1: Are there any technologies or policy initiatives that you just totally made up for the book, or are they all ideas that have been floated already?
0: Everything in the novel is based on current developments, uh, with a few small exceptions, Uh, and particularly clean, uh, wind-powered sailing ships and also even uh, dirigibles for air travel. These are common ideas. And the other one that I picked up that I like quite a lot was actually um, an individual has not published this idea of pumping out the water underneath the glaciers in Antarctica to slow them back down because the rising sea level is serious business as I wrote about in my novel, New York 2140. And it's inevitable. Uh, if we don't do some quite radical things. And also I was looking to geoengineering ideas that were unusual and seemed to have no negative consequences and would simply be good to do. So a glaciologist who I uh, became acquainted with said, um, the glaciers are sliding in Antarctica 10 times as fast as they used to. It's not that Antarctica is melting, it's that it's sliding into the ocean where it then melts. And if you could slow down the slide It's not a temperature issue so much as it is a sliding issue. And that sliding issue has to do with water lubricating the bottom of the glaciers. It's not that much water. You could pump it out from there. The ice would bottom on the rock again, slow back down again, just through friction. And you would um, take take one of the worst effects of climate change off the table. So that one, again, it's not my idea, but it's I think my book is the first introduction of that idea to the world because my glaciologist acquaintance just didn't want to get into the business of geoengineering those poor scientists who study geoengineering get a lot of crap for it and it's not deserved because we need to study all of these things because we're in big trouble but a scientist that wants to just continue to stay in their field and not get in, embroiled in the political controversies of geoengineering uh, kind of slipped me that idea because a science fiction writer's job is to do that kind of stuff
1: you mentioned New York 2140, uh, which this book uh, reminded me of a lot because, uh, again, I learned a lot about how the business of climate change might be conducted from, from that book. I really wondered whether you start with a technological idea or a suite of technological advances and then build the story around that, or do you start with the characters? When, how, how do you weave the characters into the story that you're telling?
0: I generally start with a situation that's been true my whole career. And it's very true that New York 2140 and also the earlier trilogy in Washington, D.C. that I compressed down into a single volume called Green Earth, which is much my preferred version of that. These are all climate fictions and they start with situations. And so what I do with a situation, then I try to think to myself, which character is at the crux? And it's an old Damon Knight. He was my first editor, A great teacher, A great writer. He's one of his um, tips for new writers was in any situation you think up a new innovation, a science fictional development, who hurts in this situation? And that's the character it should try to go to. Well, um, that's one way to do it. And then another way to think of it is who is put on the spot, who's put between a rock and a hard place, who has to act and then that actor will be the protagonist. And then antagonist, minor characters, uh, helpers, the, the kind of um, structuralist array of other characters that accrue around a protagonist and a main plot line um, just come naturally after that. And by naturally, I mean 10 or 12 drafts, uh, a year's worth of thought, um, spontaneous conversations between your characters that teach you what they're really like as people, at which point they either spring to life or they kind of just march through their roles. It It's a, a roll of the dice and a matter of chance, how lively characters uh, come to be as you work hard on thinking through a novel scenes. I, I love that work. I believe that novels are uh, crucially character driven and some people will perhaps be surprised to hear me say that because my novels have so much other stuff going on but for me it's always about the characters I don't believe that a novel should spend all of its time on the internal mental gyrations of a character's middle-class life that novel of character I'm not interested in but I still believe in characters. It's just that I have them doing things in the world that make them more transactional and interactional than people who are gazing into their navels through chapter after chapter. So I I believe in characters. I just have a different theory of what characterization is than your uh, standard literary fiction.
2: This book is full of characters, lots of different points of view. There's eyewitness accounts. I really love the character of Mary, who is the head of the Ministry of the Future. Uh, She's very determined, but also very sensible. In my head, I was kind of imagining her as like Angela Merkel or something, I don't know, (laughs) Uh, physically resembling that. And there was this really delicate friendship between her and this other character that blossomed in in kind of a touching way. Could you explain more about how you developed uh, Mary and her relationship with Frank?
0: Sure, and thanks for that. I'm, it was uh, central to the novel. That's the central relationship of the novel in, in character terms. Um, and after I talk about them, I want to uh, speak also to the eyewitness accounts. But it, uh, Mary and Frank have a bad meeting. I, I mean, This is absolutely not the Hollywood cute meet. This is um, a, a trauma meeting, let's put it that way, without going into too much more detail about it. Um, it's not a meeting that would result in any kind of a friendship normally, but um, I, I got really interested in Stockholm syndrome, uh, and uh, probably people are familiar with this, that the vict- hostages in, a, in a, a kidnapping develop a sympathy for their kidnappers, and it's, it's called Stockholm syndrome because of a bank hostage holdup that lasted about a week in Stockholm in the 70s. There's a good movie, Uh, based on that incident and then also in looking into that I found out that there's a thing called the Lima syndrome which is the opposite it's the sympathy that kidnappers develop towards their hostages um, to the point where in Lima they just let them go so in thinking about that and thinking about Mary and Frank this is not a normal uh, friendship this is a fraught post-traumatic relationship and a lot of the novel is about post-traumatic stress disorder of one sort or another particularly Frank's and this is climate trauma uh, and the stress disorder is going to afflict all of us it's very central to the book and I wanted to personalize it in Frank and also in Mary who had had the ordinary traumas that we all have of death of people we love so I got really interested in that like what will happen and writing those scenes was quite electric because i i wanted to um, do what the novelist does and let them speak and let scenes are not planned in advance that's the act of writing they spontaneously you sit down you start listening to the voices you start writing a dialogue it's not you i mean obviously in some level it is but you're trying actually to get out of the way and let the characters interact it's beautiful it's really the most fun work of writing novels so um, that said, and I think that worked, that's central to the novel. I'm glad you mentioned it in that way. Then the eyewitness accounts, a total stranger. They're telling you what happened to them in some historical uh, moment of importance. They were there, they saw it, they're an eyewitness. So there are collections of these eyewitness accounts, like uh, people who were in Germany in the spring of 1945, um, people were, who were, in various moments of stress. And afterwards people collect their eyewitness accounts. This is a genre that is not the same as fiction. Um, It's not written the same. You don't set it up like scene setting. You don't dramatize a scene. You summarize, you tell rather than show. It's all the things that I love in fooling around with the, the supposed rules of fiction and playing with them and trying to be faster and stranger than your ordinary novel. And I began to fall in love with eyewitness accounts. And there also, I would just um, try to get out of the way and think, uh, what would this person say if they had a chance that had maybe been in a refugee camp for 10 years straight? Uh, What would they say to you? And so that also was really important to me. And I would say the second half of 2019, when I was doing most of the eyewitness accounts in this novel, fictional eyewitness accounts, from all kinds of stuff in the next 30 years. It was probably one of the most exciting three or four months of my writing life.
1: So uh, some authors have said that there are parts of the science that they glide over a little bit just in the interest of the drama. Uh, For example, Andrew, we're has said in The Martian that uh, the winds wouldn't blow as strongly as as they do in the book, and and, uh, that's okay. Are there similar liberties that you took? Are are there things that you had to glide over in the interest of the plot, or was this not that kind of book that you had to do that?
0: No. In this book, what I really tried to do is stick to what can really happen with none of that kind of Uh, very common hand-waving or Norman Spinrad has a great term for this, the strategic opacity that right at the point where the narrative should describe how the time machine works, there's a little bit of verbal hand-waving and you create a strategic opacity in the comprehensibility of the text. And I did a lot of that in Galileo's dream, which was a time travel story and Norman Spinrad, great writer, great theorist and critic of science fiction too, um, I think that's a super useful way to think of it. There's also, for Andy Weir's case, that that initial windstorm, which I agree is completely um, unrealistic to what would happen. Um, the, they talk about the given, or sometimes even the MacGuffin, or the enabling device. You uh, you give yourself one impossible thing, like say in, an invisibility shield, and then you play, everything after that you play realistically. What if we had invisibility and then you play it realistically? So this is, I believe what he's talking about is, look, he gave himself one enabling device in order for him to do all the other stuff that he did as straight as he could. And that's super common. I, I definitely would not fault him for that. I've done it myself. Everybody has. It's how science fiction works because nobody is going to make up a, a revised theory of relativity in order to make their novel work. That it, it doesn't work that way. So uh, a little uh, strategic opacity is a good thing. And an enabling device is often how you get a story started, like a what if. What if is a basic science fiction notion. So I guess in this novel though, what I was saying is what if we got our shit together and really um, applied the entire efforts of civilization to uh, getting through climate change without a mass extinction event and coming to a better balance with our Earth's biosphere, which is our only home. What if? Well, the first thing is a lot of people wouldn't go along with it and would try to, was try to mess your program up. And, and that everybody has to agree in this world is true. So it's not gonna be an easy process. It's going to be a fight. And so I had a novel about a civilizational fight on my hands. And that's fine, because novels are good with that kind of
1: thing. Uh, Do you think we can get our shit together?
0: Yes, I do. Um, And I say that willfully, because since we could, we should. Now, whether we will, uh, when I say yes to that, this is a little bit aspirational. But I point to the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement, which is uh, uh, basically under the auspices of the UN and the IPCC, that was an event of world historical importance in 2015, signed onto by every nation on earth, that we would cut our carbon burn fast enough to get through this century without a mass extinction event. And there's all kinds of things that can Im- be immediately pointed out. The agreement only cut half as much carbon as we're really gonna to need to cut. Um, it's a voluntary agreement. People set their own numbers and they set soft numbers. It might turn into the League of Nations kind of thing and be a good idea that never went anywhere. And and, and then they got World War II. If Paris Agreement doesn't go anywhere, we're gonna get uh, the kind of disasters that, uh, that, the pandemic is just a little precursor of all kinds of disasters that might not add up to the damage of World War II or might even be worse. It just depends on how we react. So um, when I say we will, I'm looking at the Paris Agreement and thinking this problem is severe enough that people aren't going to be able to just dodge it or go down in flames because going down in flames really would be going down in flames and nobody wants that because they want a good life for their kids. So um, what I'm seeing is that we're, uh, Michael Mann, the climate scientist who's taken an enormous amount of crap from the climate deniers and has fought a good fight against them to make it more understood by everybody that we're, we're in trouble now. Um, he says we might be at a climate tipping point if, of a different sort than usual. Not that we're going to push things over into climate disaster, that we're going to, uh, whole civilization is going to make dealing with climate change the work of civilization and that we're in a tipping point towards a good political response internationally. So, um, you know, you say that and then you have to try to make it true. That's what it comes down to.
1: Speaking of going down in flames, uh, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that uh, sabotage does play a a role in the mechanics of the plot for the Ministry of the Future. Do do you think that sort of uh, direct action is going to be required to make this transition to a better world eventually?
0: Well, I would say I hope not. Right away, I would say uh, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, I hope that the heat wave mass death at the start of the novel doesn't happen. um, Partly I write those things to say um, we should try to avoid these by doing better things right now and and making a future even better than the Ministry for the Future's future. Um, That said... If there is, if we, if we uh, delay and dither and, and allow the carbon interests, the fossil fuel extractive industries to control our politics and our democracies to the point where we don't act fast on the mass political level, nationally and internationally, then we are likely to see heat waves, droughts, food shortages and food scares um, like the toilet paper scare at the beginning of the pandemic, if everybody gets scared about their food supply, it won't function and we are all screwed. So um, the pressure is enormous. And I feel like that being the case, we are going to maybe get come to grips with it in a good way that uh, because the alternative is too dire. So, um, you know, it's a, we're, we're at a very strange moment in history, although it's not unprecedented. It's because every historical moment is unprecedented, but maybe it's more unprecedented than ever before that, that we could either crash the biosphere and thus civilization, or we could actually create a really high functioning and prosperous permaculture, a sustainable and just civilization on planet in balance of the biosphere, both the other disaster and the quite great semi-utopian historical moment are available to us. But to get back to your question, and I, I, I realize I might've slid away from it out of uneasiness. Um, when you write about political violence uh, and, and you were kind to call it sabotage because sabotage is just destruction of stuff. But terrorism, or ecotage, or uh, ecological terrorism, is the killing of people, and there you get into a moral realm that um, is impossible to parse. But in general, as a as a nonviolent person and a middle class American, I would never advocate violence. But what I'm saying is that we may come into a situation where other people on the planet are so angry that we will see violent things being done, essentially against us. Uh, people who fly, people who have cars, people who um, eat beef, etc., cetera, uh, could come in for an enormous amount of anger for the people who are at the sharp end of the stick on these matters and will be suffering first. So when I wrote about it, I must say it's, it's um, this is absolutely the opposite of what I was saying to Domenica. the joy of writing the novel in 2019 this was the pain of writing the novel or the uneasiness the extreme a fear that when you write about political violence it sounds like you're approving it or saying this is the only way things will happen that's not the case but in this novel i'm saying that it very well could happen if we don't do even better than this so i you'll see when you if you were read it the character badim mysterious and never given um, that interiorized point of view, but always seen from the outside by Mary. Mary's assistant, there is one chapter from Badim's point of view. He's not named, but you know exactly who he is. It's the last scene I wrote. And one of them, the most painful of the eyewitness scenes to tell you the truth, his return to India. So I had to to, uh, fumble around, I had to cope, I had to play mental games with myself. I had to test my own courage. Um, I had to uh, damn the torpedoes in full speed ahead in a certain sense and go ahead and write about things that I myself would not advocate or approve of personally. And of course a novelist doing that is in in a very, very awkward position because everything that you write about in a novel tends to look like advocacy, especially when you're a well-known political novelist. So yeah, um, it's being discussed you know on the terms that i just described and in your terms as a as a problem point in the novel
2: yeah well as a writer i just really appreciate uh the level of transparency you have with your struggle and the process uh it was so interesting to read this book uh during the pandemic because i felt like there were a lot of parallels especially i feel like in the year 2020 i'm learning a lot about denialism and like the power of denial uh, I'm curious uh, what you're reading right now and what you're going to work on next, what you're working on right now.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I love both those questions. In mm-hmm. my reading, I'm on a hot streak, like I can't believe. I'm always reading a novel. I love them. They're kind of my religion. I'm, I began as a writer because I love to read so much, uh, and I wanted to try it myself because as a reader, it was transformative to me. And I think that uh, all humans want meaning and they get it out of the stories that they tell themselves. So these can be religious stories or they could be secular stories, but they're stories that create meaning. And I, for me, it's the novel. So, I mean, I've, I finished Hilary Mantel's trilogy about uh, Thomas Cromwell. Um, I read Elena Ferrante's new book, um, The Lying Life of Adults that came after her great Neapolitan quartet. And I also have been reading Barbara Kingsolver, who uh, has always been a big name on my radar, but I'd never read until this summer and whom I'm really enjoying. Um, I, I mean, I would kind of go backwards in her work, although I also read her most recent novel, I think it is, Unsheltered, and then Prodigal Summer, and I'm reading some other Barbara
2: uh, Kingsolver. He's fantastic. Barbara I Kingsolver. love her. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, I have to say this. One of the things that I'm totally enjoying about her is that she, too, has characters get into long conversations about ideas. And in fact, they're about environmentalist ideas and characters are arguing about them. And the stakes are high because they have different worldviews and they clash. Well, this is what I do all the time. And I was very much loving. It made me fond of her because um, she's a big bestseller she's known as a as a as a popular writer for a mostly a, the people who read um, kind of bestseller fiction or Oprah's fiction women's fiction whatnot but um, the methods she's using is the same as my geeky nerdy uh, science fictional methods and indeed she is a science fictional writer in in this sense She writes about people coping with scientific truths and coming to terms with them. She's very into Darwinism. She was trained as an ecologist uh, academically and she's always trying to teach you ecology by way of these plots of her novels that are extremely popular. I think it's really a good sign that she's as popular as she is. Uh, so that's been a great new discovery. And then as for writing, I'm writing a nonfiction book about backpacking in the Sierra Nevada of California. I've wanted to do for years. Um, with the ministry, I'm kind of tapped out when it comes to novels. I did seven novels in 12 years and, and three, two of them were, many of them were concerned with climate change. And so I'm, I'm tapped out. I don't have anything new to add there and I'm going to rest for a while and come back later writing shorter novels on more targeted themes, I presume. But for now, this nonfiction book is really somewhat of a memoir, somewhat of a geology book, a history book about the Sierra Nevada. And it's pursuing this question, why do I love it so much up there? Why am I so happy? Why have I gone back as often as I have? What is going on up there? And I'm by no means unusual in this. Sierra lovers are, are many and they are uh, intense isn't the right word for it. They're, they're glorious in the sense that they're enthusiastic. They, they've found something that gives them joy and I'm one of them. So that's what I'm writing about. And it's a new project for me. I'm, I'm trying to bring some of my novelist skills to the task, but I'm also trying to make it more about the Sierra than it is about any characters. And it doesn't have a plot except for answering the question why does one fall in love with the Sierra? So it's a lot of little stories, more like an anthology of, of pieces. And in that sense, it somewhat resembles ministry that has all those different kinds of sections, the, non, the, the, the little mini essays, the, the dialogues, the riddles. Uh, I'm bringing that variety of form to this Sierra book also. It's sort of what I learned in ministry, I'm putting to work in the Sierra book.
1: Well, what a wonderful note to end our conversation on. This is fantastic. We start with the climate catastrophe and end with the joy of the hills. And so yeah. we'll look forward to that. When When, when is it published?
0: Uh, I'm almost sure it will come out um, either late next year or early 2022. Um, it depends on my publisher. It is going to come out from a uh, uh, sister company of my my usual publisher. So that's great. I'm um, dealing with the same uh, people in a lot of ways. And I love that. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost uh, ready to send it off and then start the editorial revision process. So uh, it's up to them. Uh, editors have different senses of timelines and there will be some photos, some maps, some diagrams. This will be a little more complicated in the production part of the process. So let's just say late next year and hope for the best.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on Fiction Science, and maybe we'll have you back to talk about backpacking in the Sierra Nevada. That sounds uh, fantastic.
0: My pleasure, Alan. My pleasure, Dominica. And I would love to talk about the Sierras. So, yeah, um, let's, uh, let's put that on the docket, and we'll hope for the best.
1: To learn more about Stan's current book, The Ministry for the Future, And about the ideas laid out in that novel, check out the Cosmic Log posting at FictionScienceClub.com. And while you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. You can follow the link from Cosmic Log. One of Dominica's short stories is included in Volume 5 of The Best Science Fiction of the Year, a collection edited by Neil Clark. I'd like to thank Kim Stanley Robinson and Orbit Books for setting up the interview for this episode, and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme. We've got a great show in store for our next podcast, so be sure to subscribe to Fiction Science via Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast channel. Until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.